0: healing can happen when people share their stories welcome to trauma trial and transformation discover true stories from those who were called to sit in the witness chair experience their journey through their legal process and beyond This podcast brings to light the trauma and stress caused by testifying under oath and offers resources by talking with witnesses, key litigators, and mental wellness professionals to assist with different approaches one can utilize to prepare to take the stand and how to heal after the encounter. And now, here's your host, Juliet Huck.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. Today I'm going to do something a little different. I've had some guests who have actually gotten COVID and the flu, and holidays kind of move things around. So um, I had a guest that needed to postpone on me today. So I thought, well, why don't we take the opportunity to shine the light on on witness prep, like I started to see it, you know, years ago, and um, it really started sparking up me watching the Murdoch case this past two weeks. I don't know how many people are in involved in that or know about that, but that's the man in South Carolina, Alex Murdoch, whose wife and son were shot in the back of their property. And it just goes to show me every time I watch something like this, the just the need for really amazing witness prep. So today I thought I'd talk a little bit about how cameras in the courtroom really have changed the game for witnesses. It's not just for Court TV, which this is live on Court TV um that I'm watching. Advertising at ad nauseum, but allows us to take an inner look uh, on really like who's telling the truth. And it really comes down to, to this really interesting space that I kind of wanted to just address today. It feels a little strange talking to myself, but I'm really talking to all of you out there. So this is it's a new thing for me. But, you know, just a little history too. You know, the, the camera in the courtroom, you know, as I think most people know, when O.J. Simpson was driving down the 10 freeway, and in LA, we're used to helicopters, but I was living in Chicago at the time, and my family was visiting, and we were having a picnic outside, and all of a sudden, I don't know, one of my siblings said, you know, hey, there's this big chase in Los Angeles. It looks like it's O.J. Simpson. And, you know, today I kind of snicker about that because that's I can count a, a chase every day here, but it captivated us in a way that we just have never, I know all of us came inside an amazing barbecue afternoon <laughs> got sucked into the television. And it was really the first time that every channel picked up on something live. Like this really became a thing and It was kind of somewhat hard to believe what we were watching. Cause it was like, you know, it's, it's almost had the same feeling when I was watching January, I was watching CNN during January 6th. And I still had that, like, was it real? Is this, what's, is this really happening? It was like how I felt when I was watching CNN during January 6th, uh, you know, the, the, right, I, I just, I thought, is something making this up? This could this not be real. And I had that same feeling back in the day. But not only did we watch the chase, we watched him get to his house, and then we couldn't wait to see more. Everybody wanted to see more. And the camera really was the first time it was really highlighted to be in the courtroom during the proceedings. But a little history to that is that in 1981, the Supreme Court ruled that states could pass their own laws of cameras in the courtroom. And so we've come a long ways. And it wasn't until like 2006 that all 50 states. So even during the OJ trial in 94, you know, that was just so new. And we just became fascinated with, you know, the first time we saw the housekeeper live, first time we saw the investigator live, we watched their every move to find out one main thing are they lying? You know, and they, these, some of these people became household names, Kato Kalin, uh, Mark Furman you know, people that really still under, still know the OJ case, This is these names are still in their mind, and it wasn't without the television and live cameras. But you know, as I've talked about before, the definition of cross-examination is to break down the credibility of a witness, which we saw happen right there in front of us on the investigation with Mark Furman. Kind of a no-win situation. You're not there to say, what a great job you did. There are cross-examinations to release tell you how horrible you are and all the things you did wrong. And so uh, I've even been in the courtroom where there was a two hour argument over the noise of the click of a Canon camera um, because they did not want live cameras in, but they had a photographer in from a newspaper and it just went on and on and on. The camera's too loud and where are they sitting? And, you know, so it's, it's always been an issue. I've seen it many, many times, especially a lot of the cases that I've worked on, but The one that really hit me, obviously, you know, the Scott Peterson case was big for me. Kobe Bryant case was big for me, Enron. But those were not as much live. Uh, Scott's case was actually fought not to have live cameras in the courtroom, which in hindsight to me was one of the biggest mistakes of that case. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Because the media was just jumping on after the OJ trial. This was obviously quite a few years later, but the media was building and building the tsunami of stations and Outlets and opinionators, and so what happened is a gap was created, and this gap was created as what went on in the courtroom that day, and what actually came out on the news, because you weren't able to watch it live, so you got interpretation, and boy, it was oh, it was so hard. It was like this media storm that showed up every day. We had a gag order, but nobody else did, and it was just so wild to see how. Things shifted from what was in front of your eyeballs and your ears to what actually came out. You know, and you know this gap was detrimental because you also not only had the media messages, but you know the program, you know the programming our thoughts of who these people are and do we like them? Do we not? Are they telling the truth? What do they wear? Marsh Clark her haircut. It was just so many things that we never had to think about before. Then then you've got a jury that's not sequestered. I mean, during the OJ case, it was sequestered, but Scott's case, they weren't sequestered. So you know that this was even pre-social media. So you know that it was they could still go home, and they're going to sit down at dinner. Someone's going to ask. Someone's going to say something. The news is going to be on another room. So very, very hard to not keep this interpretation away from people that need to make those decisions. So even though the judge instructs them, don't listen to the media, don't get online, don't do this... Really? Like, do we really think that's not going to happen? I know I would have a very difficult time myself, but you know, in today's social media, then as, as the tsunami of that's built, um, it's impossible, I would think, for a jury who's not sequestered to get some kind of information. And I, I've been thinking about this during the Murdoch trial because I try to get away from news and I can't seem to get away from news sometimes because it's, it's somewhere, it's always somewhere. It doesn't even, if it flashes up on my phone, I don't even know how it got to my phone to flash up, but there's news somewhere. So, but during Scott's case, it was, it was interesting. It was, it was almost excruciating to sit in court all day watching what happened every minute, and then my jaw would drop in, in, at CNN, or, or uh, I, I'm forgetting which outlets, Fox, or there was a bunch of different outlets that had different people there. Obviously, there was tons and tons of media, trucks and camps outside the court, courthouse, I had an experience where I was in the restroom and I came out of the stall and I had a very popular media news story anchor at the sink next to me and had a very famous lawyer on the other side, on the other sink to me. So I am now bookended by two very high powered media profile women. And all I could hear was the hatred that was just flowing around me and over my head about burning the electric chair and this person should do this and that person should do this. And I just, it was so hard to just stand there and wash my hands. And I was, I was in this moment of like, wow, these, you know, talking about the families and things that were said. And I was just so, so disappointed. And yet I know the game. So that's what was hard. But the next morning, you know, we would go home and we would, you know, or I shouldn't say home. I was in the hotel and we'd be working all night long and watching what happened. And then all of a sudden you're like, wow, that's not at all what happened in the courtroom that day. So this is where it's a double-edged sword for the cameras, honestly. But I mean, I even experienced the point where we came into the cafe in the basement of the courthouse and um, a woman who was, who was very prominent today, wasn't at the time, got her 15 minutes because everything that came out of her mouth was not true. It wasn't the way it was in that day. And she even came and apologized to our trial team. And I I just, she said it was her 15 minutes. She got her 15 minutes. And so, I, you know, this, those things stuck with me. And I, it's really hard, you know, as Andy Warhol always says, every once their 15 minutes. It's one of his famous quotes, my, one of my favorite artists, but, at what cost are we doing this to other people? Not only just the witness, but the families and the ripple effect of people that are going through this. So it's that interpretation and in that space between the camera and the media just getting to create what they want to create. So with social media today, we've wiped some of that out. We've, you know, the live camera, but then what does this do the witness? Like, what what is it, you know, it's, you know, little do you know, like the cameras in the courtroom. there's, you know you become a public appearance at that point. You are now a public speaker. And as we talked to Dr. Mage a couple episodes ago, public speaking being the second most feared uh, thing to do in most people's lives. And now you're put on the stand in a public setting on national TV. If not national TV, it would be internet, news, live when this is not something, number one, you want to relive or what what you want to even think about again. And I just, so where does this leave our witnesses? Why why are we not looking at this in a different lens? I can't help but think about some of the witnesses this past week during the Murdoch trial. My heart really went out to the housekeeper. She was part of family. It's been a year and a half now. She had to relive a lot of things that she was seeing in detail going through. I mean, my heart just, My heart just hurt for her. And so, where is she? Is somebody helping her today? Like, hopefully, she's getting, you know, she doesn't have the job. She doesn't have the life. She doesn't have the family. She doesn't have her beloved Mrs. Murdoch, who she just absolutely adored. And I looked at, you know, Alex Murdoch's best friend. They were super close. Their families did everything together. I mean, how did this rip his family apart, right? And him having to testify against his best friend. And then the son, uh, Paul, his best friend, Testified this last week, and the sadness you could just see the sadness on their face, but having to relive this is such a tough situation because everybody does want justice, everybody wants to look for justice, but when you're getting thrown into the public light like that what what are we doing in a in a process to help people when they get off the stand? It's something I just want to start really drawing a light to. I don't even know the solution yet, but i'm I'm working on one i'm I'm working with other people i'm working with some programs I'd like to set up but the other thing you can't forget is you know the reputation of people I mean I grew up in a small town everybody knows your business it, it, you know here's here's this entire family everybody knows the family people know who have been on the stand for them how does that affect their if they go to church if they're their friends friendship circle their other family members and so what what can we do so you know I was talking about before where the um you know, 75% of the population has the fear of public speaking. I did look that up. Not that I didn't trust Dr. Mage. I totally trust her with everything. But I found statistics that were just mind-boggling. At 90% of the poor population reports shyness. Most people are shy, unlike me. <laughs> but we forget. We just forget. And, um, you know, you're really told at that moment when you're in witness prep, like, that. you know, you're basically told what to do, what not to do. The do's and don'ts. Don't say this, don't say that. Just say yes. Don't say, you know, don't explain. And nobody's trained for this. Nobody's, uh, it, it, I think it just needs to be more training, longer period of time, and then help on the back end. And, you know, what emotional toll happens like overnight. Like like I said, you know, here's the housekeeper who's, this has been in June of 21. And she's back now in almost April, of 20 or March of 23. That's two years of having to have the anxiety of going on the stand in a public setting. And it's just a recipe for PTSD. I mean, there's just it's basically like going to war. That's why when we work together, we call it a war room. We, we go to war. So this is where I would I really want to shine the light on compassion and empathy for somebody who has to stand up there and put their hand on a Bible to say that they want to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But the system is there to find out if you're lying. Are you telling the truth? And so I just I really wanna take a look at how we can change the witness prep process and and really open a different conversation. So um I really appreciate you guys indulging me in this little conversation today. And uh just go out, spread some love and uh thanks again for supporting the podcast. We'll talk to you next week.
0: Thanks for listening to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. If you want to share your experience as a witness, please forward your information to info at JulietHuck.com. For more information on Juliet's 30-year career in the courtroom, visit us at juliethuck.com. There you can find her books, The Equation of Persuasion, and 50 Ways to Get Your Way, available on Amazon. Remember to follow and subscribe to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation wherever you listen to podcasts. The content, opinions, and information shared by the hosts and guests on this podcast are not to be considered professional legal advice or therapeutic counseling. If you need assistance, consult with a licensed attorney or therapist if you are appearing as a witness, experiencing emotional trauma, or are involved in any sensitive legal matters. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Thank you.